you make your way to Luke chapter 11, as we continue our series through this gospel. I don't know where I will head today with voice ability, but it is leaf-raking season, and I'm, we're finding a direct parallel every October. I get laryngitis, and it always happens right after we start raking. So I don't know if anybody's got some miracle potion or something, let me know. I'm gonna, I hopefully will hold in there today, <clears throat> and you'll be able to understand, but if you'll bear with my voice, and I hope that the Lord will be able to speak through my weakness, not only physically, but spiritually, as he ministers the word to us as a church. What would you want to take with you if you were assigned the task of exploring a cave? Our lists, our supply lists might differ a little bit from one another, but I think obviously every last one of us would want a lamp. We would want a light, some light source to take us into this dark cave. Have you ever been in a cave? You know that it is absolutely dark. You can see nothing. You're utterly blind without light. And so to explore a cave without a source of light to guide you is suicide. You will be hopelessly lost. And that is true of life. This fallen world is like a cave. You will have to have light to guide you through it. We witness this reality on a number of levels. Let's just take it at a somewhat practical level. We do not even need to think in terms of Scripture and biblical truth. But what happens to that child who steadfastly resists to ever be taught or coached or instructed? Where's that child headed? We worry for such children because we know this is a dark world and they need the light of education and instruction and counsel, and without it, they're going to be blind. Where does that child end up who never receives from parents any direction or training or sense of responsibility? We fear for such children because we know where they're headed. It's a dark world, and they need that light. You do not need to live long to meet people who have no sense of direction or purpose. There's no light within that's guiding them to do what they're doing every day in life. It is as if they are blind, walking around without a lamp in a dark cave, running into one ledge after another, falling off places, tripping, seeking in the dark for the way to live, and they don't have the guidance and the way to find direction. How beautiful in contrast it is to see a child receive the light of education and character training so that the journey of life is illumined and moral failure is avoided. But let's move beyond just the look at mere children and child training as such. And I'd like to ask you this morning, what is your guiding light? And how brilliantly does it shine how effectively does it illumine your way? What is that guiding source of wisdom that informs you day in and day out? There's a battle there, isn't there? We know that there's competitive sources of direction, but do you have that light? Beginning at Luke 11 and verse 27, Jesus pointedly talks to us about our need for this directional light 
in a morally dark world. Let's remember in context, verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Remember these two reactions to Jesus? Verse 15, there were those that said, it's by Beelzebub that he casts out demons. He's in league with Satan. That's how he's doing this. Remember the second response, verse 16, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. This isn't enough. We want some more. We want more proof. Show us more miracle, Jesus. At verse 17, as you remember, as we've worked our way through, Jesus addresses that first group. Am I casting out demons by Satan's power? He addresses that, attacks that position, and shows it to be completely irrational. He is now going to go back to verse 16 and talk to those individuals who are asking for more miracles, more signs, more proof that what Jesus is saying is true and that who he is is in fact reality. So at verse 29, we notice this, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation, it seeks for a miraculous sign. You see the point, he's going back now to 16, he's already addressed 15, Verse 15 and verses 17 and following, the charge of being in league with Satan. But now he's going to go back to those individuals who are looking for more signs, more miracles. Now verses 27 and 28 are in a sense a conclusion to his discussion about those who say Jesus is in league with Satan, and they are in a sense an introduction to what follows. We refer to it maybe as a hinge or something like that. It's kind of, it kind of transitioning now to the discussion of these who want more signs. And this comes in a very unique way. Jesus is teaching, and think about what he's dealing with here. I mean, he's bat- this is a major battle. These people are saying, you are in league with Satan. And Jesus is addressing these individuals very rationally, defending himself, showing the folly of their position, standing his ground and addressing them. And a woman hears this and she yells out as she's listening. Verse 27, Jesus was saying these things. And a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. These things, this opposition that he's addressing, in that battle, this woman encourages Jesus with a word of support. Now, obviously, it's far beyond us, and our English translations mellow the language out for our sensitive Western ears. The Jews didn't think quite so sensitively about things like this, but I'll just say it literally. She says, blessed the womb that carried you and the breast which you sucked. Now, I don't know too many preachers that would really be complimented by that after a sermon, as somebody saying something like that. That's not the way that we think, but we need to understand in that context and in that day, this is a high compliment because a mother was identified with the honor of her son. And so this woman just yells out while Jesus is receiving all of this opposition, a phrase that gives him great courage and is a tremendous compliment. Blessed is your mother. Or having such a son as you might be the way we would put it. Notice what Jesus says in verse 28. Now, let me stop first and just say, you kind of want to latch on to that compliment, wouldn't you? People are all circled around you saying that what you're doing is because you're in league with Satan, and here's this woman who gives you a compliment, and you'd like to latch on to that. 
That's encouraging, but notice what he says. He replied, verse 28, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus is not rebuking the woman, I don't believe. His mother Mary is blessed for having born Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 42, remember Elizabeth and what she said. Blessed are you among women. That's biblical truth. Chapter 1, verse 48, Mary prayed, all generations will call me blessed. She is blessed for bearing the, the Savior, for bearing Jesus. The Greek word that's translated here in verse 28, rather, in our translation, translation, suggests the idea, there is truth in what you say, however, and far more importantly, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now here's where we have to stop, familiar with the text of Scripture, and say, wait a minute, what did I just hear? I tell you, I don't know of a higher honor among mothers than giving birth to Jesus Christ. Mary's song, to quote it a little further in chapter 1, was, From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. And we can hardly put into words what God did for Mary when, she, when God chose her to bear the Messiah. Let that settle down into your soul for just a moment, to think of her privilege. And then to put that together with Jesus' words. If you hear my word and obey it, you are more blessed than she is. Did you read your Bible that way this week? Did you obey God this week with that heightened sense of blessing? I did not. And I need to change. To hear God's word and do it makes us the most blessed people in history. Now, it's a tremendous wonder to be chosen by God to serve his purposes in some physical way. God does elect and choose and establish certain individuals to serve as signposts and people of great transition in the history of redemption. And Mary is one of those on the top of the page. But as vital and wonderful as, as that is, it is a greater blessing to hear the eternal word and to obey it. May we heed God's word. Jesus establishes here with this statement the primacy of heeding God's word, the all-importance of doing what God says. We then notice, secondly, the futility of testing God's truth. The primacy of heeding God's word and then the futility of testing God's truth. That's where he picks up now with those who want more signs. Verse 29, having established our blessedness, he now challenges this crowd for whom the word of God is not enough. Verse 29, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, Jesus did perform miraculous signs. 
And those signs were many and abundant, and they were intended, in fact, to proclaim who he was and to show that his truth was, was, was in fact, truth. But here we have the crowds increasing. They're pressing in upon Jesus. And now, would you not expect a preacher to be excited by a growing crowd and to show some seeker-sensitive savvy? Well, here is Jesus' opening line to his award-winning, seeker-sensitive sermon. You are a wicked people. Imagine it. They're all coming together and crowding around, and that's how he starts his message to them. You're a wicked people. Why are they wicked? Verse 29, because they are seeking a sign. You ask for a miraculous sign but none will be given. Can you imagine a faith healer today complaining that the auditorium is filling with people anxious to see God work a miracle? Well, Jesus is a real healer, and he is a genuine miracle worker. And he says to this assembling, excited crowd, folks, there will be no healings here tonight because you've come to see healings here tonight. And that is wicked. It is wicked. Save one. You will see the sign of Jonah. Remember Jonah, that Old Testament prophet? For those maybe not so familiar with the story, he was called by God to preach to the heathen Ninevites. The Ninevites were a wicked people. They were cruel. And they did much to make Israel's life miserable. Jonah boarded a ship for Tarsus in the opposite direction of Nineveh. I'm not going to go talk to those people. He disobeyed God's word. He heard it, but he didn't do it. On that ship, there was a violent storm that God whipped up, and Jonah was tossed overboard by the sailors and swallowed by a fish in whose belly he spent the next three days and nights. And while he was enduring that harrowing experience, Jonah repented of his disobedience to God's word. God caused the fish to vomit Jonah out onto the shore. And we read these words in Jonah 3. Very interesting. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. God just said exactly what he had said before to Jonah. It came to him a second time. Go. And what does Jonah do? He goes, and he takes the word of repentance, and he preaches it faithfully to Nineveh. Verse 30, Jesus continues, For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. All the Ninevites needed was to hear and obey God's word through the prophet Jonah. You see the point? All these people need to do is hear God's word through the prophet Jesus. You saw Jonah? You saw what happened? That's what must happen here. I have a word to preach, and you need to hear it. You're here to see another miracle. You need to obey God's word. 
There's no need for miraculous signs. He rebukes these Jewish hearers by commending then two Gentile examples of individuals who respond to the message. He starts, first of all, to the message of God's word. He starts, first of all, in verse 31 with the queen of the south. She will rise up, says Jesus, at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba. She's coming from southern Arabia or modern-day Yemen. In that day, it would have taken this queen in caravan a number of months to complete this journey. But she goes on this long journey, think of it, several months travel time, just to hear the wisdom of God's king, Solomon. This woman, says Jesus, will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation because she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and I'm telling you, now a greater than Solomon is here. I am God's son. I am wiser than Solomon. My message is greater than his, and you want to spend your time testing the validity of my wisdom by witnessing another miracle. You mark my word. Someday the queen of Sheba will rebuke your wickedness. The preacher's really preaching here, I'll tell you. This isn't easy stuff for them to hear. Being rebuked by a Gentile queen. He keeps going. Verse 32. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. He goes back to the sign that will be given to them. Jonah Identical point with verse 31. The Ninevites, these wicked people, responded to Jonah's message. They are your condemnation, says Jesus. A greater prophet than Jonah is here. I bring you the word of God. Your job is to hear and do, not to seek another miracle. And I think we can say by way of principle at this point that hearing and obeying God's word is primarily an act of the will, not a satisfaction of the intellect. They wanted to be intellectually reassured that Jesus was right, that his word was true, some sort of external sign that would show that he really was preaching the truth. Jesus continues to come at them from the moral angle. You have a moral responsibility to believe. That is his call to them. Now, Jesus did proclaim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He proves that claim to us by his resurrection. But as Jonah did not spend his time with the Ninevites talking about his deliverance from the fish, so Jesus does not spend all of his time proving that his word is the truth. He does not spend all of his time pointing to the miracles and to the signs. And he certainly is not running around Palestine working miracles for whoever asks. He is saying you have a moral obligation to respond in faith to what I say and to do it. He's pulling no punches. You either reject his word in faith or you embrace it in faith. You trust that he's wrong or you trust that he's right. There is only one way to ultimately prove God's word, and I think this will be shown throughout Scripture. 
There's only one ultimate way to prove God's word. And you know what that is? To do it. It is by doing it, it is by living it, that we prove it true. Blessed, says Jesus, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now there is, an, there is a mountain of work to accomplish and to overcome as we seek to rationally understand God's word. It is fully rational. It makes perfect sense. It can be completely defended apologetically. But that's not where anyone starts. Jesus comes to earth as God incarnate, and he says, I am the creator of heaven and earth. Here is my word. Do it. And as you do it, you find it to be true. The primacy of heeding God's word, the futility of testing God's truth. Thirdly, the beauty of walking in God's light. Verse 33, I believe, is connected to all that has been said to this point. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Very simple point, isn't it? You don't light a lamp and hide it under a bushel. A lamp is lit in order that it would give light. Listen, folks, says Jesus, I think essentially, I am not putting out my light and hiding it in the cellar. I am putting out my light on a lampstand. You can see it. You know what I'm saying. Not a matter of me being obscure with my teaching. It's plain. It's simple. It's straightforward. It is a message of repentance and a reception of the kingdom of God which has come among you. It's a straightforward message. The lamp is on the light stand. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. What's he saying? Let me just seek to paraphrase it a bit for a few moments. It's a little bit tough to unpack. But Jesus is teaching that light is, Jesus' teaching is the light that shines brightly. Nothing obscure about it. The only possible problem is that you are blind to it. You don't see it. If you are blind, your entire body is affected, not just your eye. If your eyes are bad, you live in the dark. Your entire body lives in the dark. Verse 34 pictures the eyes figuratively as lamps that light the way for the body. Now, obviously, the light source comes from without the body. We don't have lights from within. There's no inner light as far as Jesus is concerned. But there's an outer light that comes. Our eyes serve as the lamp, then, that lights our inner being. It's receiving the light. It is also, in another sense, acting like a lamp, showing us where to go. Now, all of this is taken in moral terms, right? Verse 35, he says, See to it, then, that the light within you is darkness. What is he saying? My word is the truth. You have to receive it and live it out. And if you do, it will light your way. There's a moral response once again. See to it 
that you take the lamp of truth into the dark cave of life and let it guide you. So once again, the task is not to break the Word of God down into pieces and test the pieces under the microscope of human reason, as if we could render perfect judgment on God's truth anyway. Jesus never wasted his time demanding that people prove his word true with reason because no finite, fallible, flawed human being could ever do that. And yeah, that's right. It's not fair. Jesus isn't worrying about being fair with the philosophies of this world. They all come from fallen, fallible, sinful teachers. Jesus is not a fallen, fallible, sinful teacher. And so he comes to earth and says, this is the way that it is. And you don't have the time to figure everything out. You're not going to live long enough to investigate the depths of every human philosophy. You won't live long enough to investigate the depths of one human philosophy. Your lifespan is such, and my word is such, that you need to just say, receive it. I'm the creator. I'm your God. I'm the one who laid down my life for you. Here is my word. It's light in a dark cave. Take it. You're lost in a cave and someone comes along and hands you a lamp. You don't ask how it works. You put the lamp on and you use it. And as you use it, you say, you know what? It works. It's the truth. It's the life. Am I right about this? Is this fair? Are we twisting the passage? Walk in my light. Obey my word. It's a moral response. I don't think it's twisting anything. Listen how John put it in John 3. Just listen. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. He never says that men love darkness more than light because they can't rationally prove the light. It's because their deeds are evil. Everyone, says John, who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the life. Did you hear that? Whoever lives by the truth, whoever obeys the truth, comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is what God desires, is that the light of his truth would illumine our way so that as we obey that truth, he is glorified for his light, not we for our smarts. There is a tremendous prospect for those who hear God's truth and live in active obedience to it. We can be his little children walking in obedience to his word. Verse 36, therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. If you hear and obey God's truth, it will light your way. Your entire being will be guided by the moral beauty of God's truth. It will be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. And there will be a life of beauty that shines for others to see. Take my truth and live it. Let it be your light. Let it be your guide. 
I just want to try for a few moments to make this stick. And I know this won't be perfect, and I wish Jesus could tell us more parables, but I'm going to try one myself. Just let it sit in on the basis of what we've studied. Once upon a time, there was a sea captain who stood on a dock where he bid farewell to his wife and 17-year-old twin daughters. With his ship moored in the background, the captain explained to his family that he would not be coming back for a very, very long time. The king had called him to fulfill a dangerous mission on the other side of the ocean. It would be a long time till they saw him again. Before he whispered a few parting words in the ear of his wife, he took his two daughters aside alone, and he spoke these words to them. You are the most beautiful women in the land. And this wasn't fatherly prejudice, it was true. He said, as soon, soon you will be of marriageable age, but I want you to realize something you don't fully realize now. We live in a vile town. And I want you to show no interest in any man while I am gone. I want you to remain pure. I want you to develop, to develop your mind and your spirit and to take good care of your body. And I want you to always rejoice. I will return. I also want you to know that when I return, I am going to bring for each of you a husband whose stature and character and fine looks will be the envy of every woman you will ever meet for the rest of your lives. They will bury the men in this town. Trust me and keep my word. Father then boarded the ship and sailed away. Those two twin girls that waved goodbye and turned for home with saddened hearts were identical twins. No one could tell them apart. They were double beauty in that town. But one sister believed her father, and the other did not. The one twin doubted that her father would ever return, and she could see no rational explanation for this too-good-to-be-true husband who was supposed to come someday. She wasn't gullible like her sister. There was no way her father was telling the truth. It was a lie meant only to control them. He really wanted to just get away from their mother. And so she rejected her father's counsel and began immediately to disobey him. She did not rejoice. She did not trust him. She did not work to develop mind or body, and she did not work to keep herself pure. She began to invite the attention of the base young men in her town and by three years later, those two girls no longer looked alike at all. Because the other sister, who believed her father, had become a vibrant and successful young woman of famous beauty and skill. She had done everything that her father said. She had developed her body and her mind, and she had kept herself pure. And Though the advances of the men of the town were many, 
They begged her mother for her hand in marriage, knowing that they could never corrupt her any other way. But she continued to resist and continued to honor her father's word. She put down popularity. She put down the pleasure of marriage. She set it aside and waited until her father would come back. And she prospered. With joy of heart, she anticipated that grand day that her father would bring the bridegroom. She labored with hope every day to make herself the most beautiful woman that she could be. But in that same period, her sister had grown bitter and cynical. By carousing with the vile young men of the town, she was now controlled by alcohol. She routinely sold her body. Her life spiraled downward so that on her 20th birthday, she wallowed in her own filth in a dark prison cell, pregnant with a child she did not want and whose father she did not know. Her lifestyle had stolen her beauty, her freedom, and her hope. She had become an ugly young girl and bitter to the core. And one day from her prison cell, she watched out at sea as her father's ship returned. She was so bitter and so had come to so despise this man through belief in her lies that she could not even understand what she had lost. She saw the two young men by the side of her father as he came off of the ship, and she hated all three of them. The other sister, of course, radiated joy as she embraced her father and blushed to see the two men standing by his side. For three years, her father's word had been her light. She never understood how her father's word would prove true, but in childlike faith, she trusted it. She walked in the light of his counsel while her fallen sister remained blind to that light. I give you this parable to say that is very much how we may live our lives. We can spurn God's truth, or we can play with it a little bit and trust it a little bit, but still be darkened by what we don't believe and blinded to the realities that are because our Father is no sea captain on the other side of the world. Our Father reigns from heaven's shores. He knows the truth. He has spoken the truth. And he gives us his word to light our path so that it will guide us to do all kinds of things we would never do on our own, all kinds of things we cannot prove are rationally true. But he illumines our path and teaches us the way to live that we might have joy in his presence. The Bible is not information to prove our point. The Bible is not information with which to stuff our heads. The Bible is truth to light our way. It's not an encyclopedia. 
It's a love letter from God that steers us day by day into the light that he wants us to receive. And so the call of Jesus is hear it. Hear what I've said. I've called you to a life of purity and kindness and goodness. I've called you to a life of faithfulness and fervor for God, of sharing the truth of my word with a lost world and living a life of moral beauty by loving your enemies. And on and on his word goes. Those letters arrive every day from his distant shore, teaching us, lighting our way, shining on our path, his truth that will guide us. Do I speak to anyone here today? You say, I'm in the dark. I am in the dark. I don't know how to live and where to go. And there's an inner guidance system that is self. But I need real light. I invite you, I call you in the name of Christ to come to his truth and to embrace it today. He will light your path. But he's going to start the sermon out with you are part of a wicked generation. That darkness that you're in is your own sin. That cave in which you languish is your own wrong and rebellion against the Lord. But the beauty is that Jesus Christ took that sin and he died in your place to pay its penalty. He rose from the dead and is coming back, and he now gives you his light. You must embrace it first at that point of understanding that he died to give his life for you. If you do walk in that light today, how this should transform our reading of the word of God. It is light to our path. It's not something to do ritualistically to take in God's truth as we gather as a church or to read it at home on your own and to hear a sermon on the radio. it's, It's not to pack your head with interesting facts and information, to prove somebody else wrong, to justify the way you live. It's there to give moral guidance to your life so that you live a life of beauty. Embrace the primacy of heeding God's word in your life. Know that it is futile to test it rationally as if you could prove it wrong, but walk in the beauty of that light. This is God's grace to you through Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, there's no novel truth here for us who know your word and know Jesus. No novel truth at all. We know this. I plead, dear God, that we'd live it. That your word and your doctrine and your truth would permeate our hearts and our souls. That it would truly guide us. Perhaps there's some of us who would look around at certain children and and grieve for them because of the lack of training and light and guidance that they've failed to receive or that that they've received from their parents. 
this failure. But God, may that not be us as your children. To spurn your truth. May we live it and obey it. God, I appeal to you because of this topic for the conviction of the Spirit of God. For all of us who read your word and hear it preached with routine aren't getting everything that we need to get. I pray that you open our eyes to see ourselves for who we really are. That your searchlight of the word of God would open our minds to see who we are and would change us and transform us. And again, I pray for anyone who's lost in darkness. May they understand that today, in a sense, a great flashlight has been placed in their hand in the middle of a dark cave. And I pray, God, that by your power and your Spirit's initiative, they would turn on the light and live it. Live in light of it. God, please work to this end as you move and change us and help us to respond to your living word. Through Christ I pray, amen.